There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Jordan, how are you? Good. How's it going, Yanni? Really good. It's, uh, I'm, I'm a little tired. It's, uh, it's, it's the middle of hunting season, so I'm, uh, I'm sort of feeling like I'm in that space where there's barely enough time to clean up from one adventure um, before I start packing, getting ready for the next one. But I'm super excited about the next one. I'm taking the kids uh, antelope hunting. They're not hunting, but they're coming along for the camping and the adventure, which is what I really care about. But uh, today, uh, Jordan and I are going to run, rip through a couple of uh, recent adventures that we've had and uh, talk about some of the gear that really excelled on those adventures. First off, I ran <clears throat> my first, I guess they call it an ultra marathon. I didn't know this until recently, but I guess anything over 26 miles or 26.2 counts as ultra. This was a 50K, which is 31 miles. Uh, and it was, it's called the rut run happened down in uh, big sky, Montana, which is just about an hour South of Bozeman here where I live. And, uh, it went well trained almost a year. I started training in December, raced in early September. And, uh, I was nervous, man, 31 miles and roughly, I think it's like somewhere between 10 and 11,000 feet of elevation gain and loss. And it went well. My goal was 10 hours and I finished 8.55, 21st in my age group, which whatever. I wasn't racing for the podium. It felt good just to finish. It felt good to have a good day out there. And now I'm in possibly the best elk hunting shape that uh, I've ever been in at the, at the uh, spry age of 44. A couple pieces of gear, though, that I want to talk about that really have excelled not just in this race, but like as I've been running a bunch this summer. One is Gooder sunglasses. Have you seen those yet, Jordan? 
No, I haven't. Dude, 25 bucks, I think, for like their base model. And I've got a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I've had lots of fancier pairs of sunglasses that are upwards of like 200 bucks, you know, for, mm-hmm. for a pair. You know, as a fishing guide and stuff, you know, we used to always have, you know, a, a pro deal with whatever, Oakley and, and Costa. But man, running, like the worst thing is when those suckers just keep slipping off your face and you got to keep putting them back on. Yeah, I get sweated up. These yeah. gooders, I kid you not, you put them on and you'd never have to touch them again until you're ready to take them off. Like they just don't slip. Now, for 25 bucks, I don't think you're getting like the best lens quality, obviously. And I think they're polarized. I think not that that matters when you're, you know, that much when you're out in the out running or out hunting. But like for, for a, a good pair of field sunglasses for 25 bucks, man. Uh, like in- incredible value there. Like everybody I know that's tried them really loves them. The other thing, and you can get them. I've seen them at I think REI, and then pretty much like any running store I've been into seems to be carrying Gooders. It's spelled G O O D R. The other thing that I used running the rut is Spring Energy gels. I don't know how many. Like, are you ever a consumer of gels, gel type products? I used to, and I just don't really do it anymore. I like the little chews, like gummy bears, yeah. you know? I, I agree. They're a little more candy-like and, and like they're a little more palatable. The thing is, is when you're running and you're like under duress and, and, and working hard, it can be hard to actually chew and then, and then pull down something like a chew. Like there becomes a point in longer runs, longer races where you just want to get calories in the easiest way possible. And there's a lot of, you know, drink mixes now that you can just add to the water that are getting calories, but sometimes even that is not enough. And sometimes, a lot of times for me at least, even the drink mixes that are uh, marketed as not having any flavor and and just, you know, basically being like your water, even those start to get just a, a little annoying and you start to get like a syrupy kind of a sticky mouth. And a lot of times late in the, in a run, all I want is just water because that's just like what my body's craving. But there's a gel. A lot of times with gels, so they're they're made so they are easier to just you know palate and, and take down than say blocks or you know other real food. Mm-hmm. They've always been syrupy and kind of heavy, sticky, and, and just a little too much to you know to suck down. And um, you're just working way too hard you know, to try to get those calories in. But these spring gels, I don't know what they did, but they have, like, one of the flavors they have, I forget what it's called, but they did a bad job naming it because it should just be called, like, tart applesauce. Instead, they <laughs> called it, like, cinnamon apple pie or some shit. But it's it, it's literally tart applesauce. And I like anything that's tart, in, in whether it's bars or gels or whatever, because it helps you create saliva, which helps all that stuff go down. But this, like, these gels are not gel-like. They are, I don't know, the best way to describe it is just like super liquidy. So literally in, in like a squeeze, you can just suck the whole thing down in, in one or two gulps and it's gone bye-bye and a little bit of water on top of that and you don't feel like you actually, you know, put anything like any anything that was sugary or syrupy across your uh you know your your tongue that would then kind of stick with you and uh you know make the next 10 minutes of running or whatever you're doing less fun so 
Anyways, uh, yeah, spring energy gels. If, if you're the type of person that likes to... Hunting, I, a lot of times I don't carry stuff like that around, but I, I do... I, I don't carry around to have to use every day, but I like to have one or two of those for the late night pack out or for just that day that goes super long and you're like, oh my God, we're five miles in and we're trying to get to back to the truck. It's nice to like halfway through that hike, be like, oh yeah, I've got one of these things. And you shoot that and you drink some water and it gives you that little boost and those extra calories that help keep the pace up. Nice. Can you feel it? Like if you feel like you're running down a little bit on calories, can you like feel your energy pick up after you take one of those? Yeah. You know, I don't do caffeine because of my heart. There's, there's, they have gels, uh, you know, of all makes and, and brands that have caffeine in them. I'm guessing that you would feel it even more with that. For me, it's, it's probably more of like a gradual, like, like I, the goal for me is always to never really let myself get down and get tired and just always keep my energy levels up and keep my calorie intake up so that I never, never fall off. But I would say that in that nine hours of running the rut, there were times when I could feel sort of feel like just a, um, you know, a slower pace, kind of like a, a, a block kind of coming over me and then thinking like, oh, yeah, dude, like keep eating, keep eating. I mean, literally for nine hours I, from the beginning to the end, I kept telling myself, just keep eating, keep eating, keep drinking, keep drinking, keep eating, because you have to have the fuel, you know, to make it that long. And uh, there was probably some times where I didn't stay on top of it enough. I felt myself slipping a little bit. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, you'd be like, oh, OK, I feel normal again, you know, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't call it like an energy boost, but I would call it you can you can feel the difference and, and sort of just feel like you're not you don't feel like you're working as hard i guess man well good for you i sounded like a, a grinder and you came in it was fifth you were 15th right 21st in my uh age group which is like 41 to 50 i guess yeah um for males i think overall out of like 500 i was like 160th or something like gotcha. that gotcha um let's kick ass which you know, it's fun to compete because every just everybody's there, going through the same trials that you are that day, and everybody's on the same team, and that's what makes those races fun, is to be part of that community. Because all season long, we run by ourselves, a lot of training by yourself, and then you get to get together with five hundred other people that are all gonna, you know, put themselves up against this pretty monstrous, you know, hurdle and try to get through it. And it was a hot day. I know quite a few people that pulled themselves out of the race because the heat got to them. Um, And uh, yeah, most surprisingly was I give myself like two full days where I thought I was going to be crawling around the house because my legs wouldn't work. And I had like some slight soreness in my lower quads, like right above my knees. But Mm -hmm. otherwise it wasn't too bad. And I was, uh, I was archery elk hunting two days later. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because you shot a big bull. <laughs> well, thanks for calling it, calling him a big bull. Uh, he was. He, 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 he is one of, um, definitely one of the nicer bulls I've killed. I, we taped him and I think he ended up going 270, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how the, what, the, what the, what a person with the camera, if they know what they're doing, how big, <laughs> yeah. how much bigger they can make uh, a bull yeah. elk look. 
But uh, yeah, he was a five by six. I was super stoked. I got to hunt with our colleagues, uh, our colleague, Corey Calkins, and then used to be a colleague of ours, uh, Michael Kaman. And uh, they were nice enough to uh, invite me along to hunt their spot. And they both were previous Montana elk hunting guides and outfitters. Uh, Mike actually used to outfit the Bob, which uh, that's for another story, but I'm going to try to get him to take me into there. Cause that's, that's a bucket list adventure for me is mm-hmm. to go into the Bob Marshall wilderness on a, on a, on an elk hunt. But uh, yeah, when they invited me along, I was like, you know, I could go out and, you know, suffer by myself and try to figure it out by myself, which, you know, I could do. But when two like prior Montana elk hunting guides invite you to go hunting at, the, at their spot, I'm like, yeah, that's probably going to be pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I couldn't pass it up. And uh, yeah, we had decent hunting, I'd say probably half of the days. We, we got into it. We found a zone that was holding, I don't know. 30, 40 elk and enough bulls that they were getting each other fired up and talking. And we got to work them for about a day and a half until some other hunters found that group as well. Um, I killed my bull out of that group, but once the applied, you know, just that much more pressure was applied to him because it was a bigger group of hunters. Mm-hmm. They had four or six people. I don't know if they were all hunting that same group, but it definitely was evident that within... 24 hours of that extra pressure, those elk either shut up and just started hiding in the timber or they completely moved out of the zone. I can't tell you exactly what happened because uh, I'm not one of those elk, but I know that they were hard to find in there. And we ended up just saying and just left it alone and went and found other uh, country to hunt and found other elk after that. But uh, yeah, it was cool. We saw the bull in the morning um, that day. I think it was the Second or third day of hunting. It must have been the third day. We saw the bull in the morning chasing a cow around. It was funny because he was stuck on one cow, rutting her. And there was a whole another herd that was literally on the same hillside as, as them, you know, bugling, going nuts. But those, like that group and then that single bull and cow, they didn't ever really interact it, you know. So I guess I, my guess is looking at it now is that he just had a a, you know, a hot cow had cut her away from the herd and, and was, you know, trying to breed her and then was going to maybe, you know, come back. Because that evening, we we saw him go over a ridge. And so we basically hunted from the backside and we we're kind of watching this ridge. And we hear the bugling start. We find the bull is bugling. He's got seven or eight cows. And it's like this young, you know, what I would call probably a two-year-old five-point. And he's bugling his brains out. We're like, huh, that's interesting. Like, where's the big bull? Well, we keep glassing, glassing, and a couple hundred yards down the ridge, there's the bull that I end up shooting, just feeding. Every now and then he kind of picks up his head and is looking towards the action, but totally not running, not, you know, not in the mix at all. And, and we saw that a lot that week, actually. And I don't know if it was just because it was early in the rut. And, and so the young bulls were kind of having their go before the big bulls were going to kind of come in and take over the harems. But it was, it was just interesting to actually see that you've, I've heard about that, but it was interesting to see it play out where literally these two-year-old bulls were running around with 10, 20 cows, you know, bugling their brains out, pushing them around, hurting them. And then couple hundred yards away there's a you know a bull much bigger two or two couple years older probably and he's not even messing with them you know 
Uh, anyways, we had other hunters in the area and where we tried to approach the herd, we ha- we heard hunters ahead of us. So we backed out and our plan was like, you know, they're kind of here, they're closer to the herd. We'll just kind of play the periphery and see what happens, you know? And we were kind of, wor- we were actually working down towards the creek bottom because we'd figured we'd have a good downhill thermal that would be moving down the creek. And so we were heading towards sort of the downwind, down, you know, uh, down current side of all this action. I'd say we were, I don't know, three, 400 yards away from where most of the bugling was happening. And we're getting down towards the creek and just happened to look up and that the, this bigger bull that we had glassed earlier is now sort of angling down this hillside across from us and, and basically going to, you know, we're going to cross paths in the creek bottom. So we boogied, got to where the creek bottom sort of had, or at least the side that we were on, there was like a little bit of a ledge, like maybe 10 feet up, kind of a steep bank, and then it went into the timber. So I got right on, on that ledge and was looking over the creek bottom and I had lost the side of the bull. But as I sat there for, I don't know, it took me a couple minutes, like he popped out from behind a tree and he was maybe, I don't know, 100 yards or so, 150 yards up the hill. But again, he's sort of feeding, working the way, or, you know, down towards us. And sure enough, he comes in there and um, comes straight down the hill. And I had pre-ranged everything in the creek bottom, everything. Basically, once he hit the creek, that was 40, and then everything else was closer. And he comes right into the creek. And this is a little bitty creek. Like, you know, you'd have to, you'd struggle to find a spot where you could easily, you know, dip a Nalgene full of water. But he drops into the creek, goes behind a tree. I'm not at full draw yet. As he starts moving out from behind this fur, I draw. And... He's walking, walking, and he kind of goes up the creek a little ways. He's, so he's kind of become, he went from broadside to being quartering away because he went away from me a little bit. But then he drops his head down to uh, drink. And at that moment, I'm at full draw. I settle my pin, touch one off. And as that arrow's in the air, I don't know if he heard the bow, heard the arrow or what, but he lunges forward. And instead of that bullet, but instead of that arrow going in behind his last rib and up into the uh, you know vitals, it goes literally almost right up his keister. And the first thought in my mind was, "Oh my goodness, what did I do? Like, not yeah. good, not good." But he only goes like ten yards and kind of stops, and I can see major blood spilling out of where, where the arrow went in. And I can only see like the very tip, like maybe a chunk of the fletching, but really I'm just seeing my knock. And he just stands there and he's standing there and I have enough time to knock an arrow and I'm pulling back on the string, but then he starts walking and he walks parallel to me and up onto my hillside and into the timber. So I'm thinking, all right, well, haven't made a good shot. I should just back out of here. And we're going to have to come back and, and see what happens. As I'm going through this in my head, I can hear him sort of stumble a little bit up ahead. I mean, he's only, he's still only 40, maybe 50 yards from me. So I decide just to kind of hang out and listen. I've got good wind. I'm just going to listen and see what happens. Every just, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, I can hear like a heavy footstep. So I know he's not like, he's not moving. He's not continuing anywhere. He's just in this zone. And I keep hearing these, like every now and again, just like a heavy dunk, dunk, or maybe like a little branch break. I'm like, huh, 
he's he's moving, but he's not going anywhere. So I'm thinking like, okay, maybe he's you know he's injured pretty good. So I decided to start creeping towards him. And the major reason I started, I wanted to get in closer to and possibly get another arrow in him is I could hear the other hunters calling. Like I said, a couple, 300 yards up the creek and just being afraid that they could bump him. Um, you know, something could happen out of my control. I didn't want to like leave him at that moment. I still had like probably an hour before dark. And so I start creeping in, um, Long story short, it takes me 20 minutes to get in there. It's just dead quiet. I'm trying to really be quiet, and I just cannot get. I finally see him but at 20 yards, but I, I cannot get an arrow. Like, I cannot find a window to shoot. When I, As I'm watching him, he actually does, like, a circle and then beds down, but almost like it was, like, halfway between bedding down and falling down, and he sort of, like, just, you know, falls in a, mm-hmm. in a pile. Unfortunately, he's, like, facing right at me. So again, there's like no shot towards the vitals, but I get close enough and I get to a point where I'm like, okay, if I can just take like two more big steps, I'm, I'm like literally less than 10 yards. He, he's, I think he, at this time he's aware of my presence, but he's, he's like, he's kind of trying to get up, but he doesn't have his hind legs. So I'm like, okay, just get in there and move to the side to where you can get the angle and, and get another arrow in him. And so I come to dr- full draw I try to take those steps, but that's enough to like spook him. And he does get up on all fours and I just can't again, just get an arrow in him. And he starts going back to where he came back towards the Creek bottom. So now I'm at full draw sort of following with him. He's crashing through the timber. I'm taking some steps. I should have let down, but you know, in the heat of the moment, I stayed at full draw. I follow him for, I don't know, five to 10 yards and finally, the, the woods kind of open up enough, and there he is, and I, I shoot him again. That shot that goes into the shoulder there actually dropped him, and he fell down, but he still had some life left in him, and so I, I ended up putting another one in his heart, and that finally made him expire. So the whole thing probably lasted, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes. It was pretty intense, definitely not the way you know you want to kill an elk, but... Mm-hmm. It, uh, you know, it happens, you know, um, I still feel good about that shot. Um, you know, it, it was quarter and away hard, but like I've taken that shot before. It's a great way to get an arrow up into the vitals. Um, but you know, animals jump sometimes, you know, so I ended up with a dead bull, um, pretty stoked on it. The, uh, the heavy arrow, I think, played a part in me getting that bull. The sharp broadhead that I that I had sharpened, uh, I started a new sharpening. I used a new sharpening system this year. I started using Benchmade's, uh, or sorry, not Benchmade's, but WorkSharp's. I think it's called like their Elite Sharpening System. I can't remember now, but it's basically like a you you put your blade in a clamp, and then there's these bars that are that you can adjust the angle of that have the the stone attached to them and you use that to go up and down your edge um worked great for these broadheads um these were the tough head single bevel broadheads but i think that those two things heavy arrow super sharp broadhead like it helped me it even though it wasn't a, it was not by any means like the hit that i wanted it it busted through some part of the pelvic bone on the way in and then still got 
you know, nearly 30 inches of penetration and, and cut, you know, whatever it cut in there to cause enough, you know, bleeding to happen where it slowed that elk down to the point where he couldn't go, you know, more than 50 yards from where I shot him. So again, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to celebrate a, a, a poor shot, but it does happen. And, uh, I'm happy that, uh, you know, I had the equipment that was still able to perform in the case of a, of a bad scenario. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. The other thing I want to bring up about this hunt is that we tested, you've been testing this pant too, but over here at First Light, we're working on a new ultra early season, ultra lightweight, breathable haunting pant. And we're in like the first rendition of it. You can speak to what you've seen about it. I like it so far. It seems like it really does excel when it's super hot. It's got some nice vents in it that uh, help open it up even more. Um, but this is a call to action to all you listening. We want to have you guys give us some input on what you guys would like to see in an early season pant. 
So you can go to the Meteor website, go to podcasts, find this podcast, find this episode, and then comment underneath it there on what you'd like to see in early season pants. Uh, Jordan, what have you thought so far about the uh, early season pants? They, I really like them. I use them pretty much most of September. Really lightweight. Like the venting options are pretty on point, I think. I even wore it the first week of October in Wyoming for a hunt that, that I went on with a buddy and just putting wick bottoms underneath of it. Like it really got me into that October season, especially if you're on hot. I really don't. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to take it on that hunt little later, like the mornings were definitely cool and I wanted to see what I could push it to. Mm. And, uh, with base layers on underneath and then, you know, of course, if you really want to, you can just throw puffy pants over the top of it. I didn't do that, but, um, it was a really nice, it was a really nice pant, especially in, in some of those, you know, October seasons, like we're in now where it's, it's really cold in the mornings and the evenings. Like it can be like 16, you know, 15, 20, whatever in the mornings. And then in the middle of the day, it's like 65 and 70. So mm-hmm. you really need to be able to adapt to the changing temperatures. And I think that I really like those early season pants and even, you know, pushing them into the the colder months. Mm-hmm. Any like constructive notes that you're going to give to for changes on those pants? The one set of the one set of zippers in the front, the vent, those are connected to the pockets, so you can't really use your pockets if you want those vented, mm-hmm. which I think is a little goofy. Uh, so that's definitely one thing I'm going to talk about. But other than that, I didn't really have anything. Did you have something? Well, that you were I think say? Uh, I had that same note, and other people have too. And so, if you're at home listening, what we're talking about is that the the cargo pocket itself has a zipper down the edge of it, the inside edge, so sort of like your inner thigh, and it basically creates a like a kind of a baffled opening into the pocket, which the, the pocket is, is mesh on the inside, so that it creates another vent. But like Jordan just said, when you open that vent, it sort of negates the pocket because now you've like opened the pocket wide open, and if you had something in it, it could possibly fall out. So... I, I think that they were thinking like, oh, it's a good way to sort of get two uses out of one thing. But I think pockets have to be able to hold some stuff, mm-hmm. you know, securely always because it's just going to happen, right? Where you're going to forget, you're going to open it up and you're, you're going to forget that you had whatever, your extra release in there. I don't know, you know, your headlamp and it's going to fall out and then you're going to be bumming. So anyways... Yeah. Like I said, please uh, help us make these early season pants the best they can be. Um, tell us what would be important for you to see in an early season pant by commenting uh, in the comments under this episode on uh, the Gear Talk podcast page on the Meat Eater website. Cool. All right, Jordan, you got uh, less than 10 minutes to tell me all it. about your how you killed that big monster buck in Idaho. Yeah, so uh, I guess the story really starts in September. We had hunted a bunch, found a big buck opening day of archery season, and uh, about a week later or so, ended up finding out that that buck got killed, so um, ended up backing out and more so giving that spot a 
a breather. You know, I just felt like we hunted it out really well. Went to another spot, uh, hunted with my wife a bunch, and she shot at a buck at 40 yards and missed just right over the top of him on an awesome stock. And we're trying to figure out what to do for rifle season, like go go to where we had seen some more deer, but there's probably going to be more people or, or go back to where we had archery hunted and probably see less people, a little more challenging to get into, but it is like a commitment. And when you're in there, you're kind of stuck in that one spot unless you're going to completely pack out. So mm-hmm. ended up deciding like the weather was going to be pretty good. We decided we wanted to go back into the high country and try where we did for archery. So this is a bit of a, it's one of those right place, right time kind of stories, Yanni. We, uh, we packed everything from, from the house and what we were doing is we we're actually on our, you know, quote unquote, we call it a hunting moon, but it's kind of like our honeymoon. Uh, three weeks, there's like four different states that we were hitting for, for deer. So Idaho was starting out. That was the first stop. So we were packing stuff for three weeks. And, uh, so it just took us a little longer than normal, left the house later than we wanted to, to try to get packed in as just often happens. Driving to the trailhead, come around this little corner in this pocket of trees, a buck bolts across the road in front of us. And we see it for, you know, a couple seconds, but we think it looks like a good buck, but we can't understand why he's down near the road just didn't make much sense so we talked it over and 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 that's because you're just thinking that all the bucks should be up higher in elevation yeah more more so and there's just like that was a a fairly major road that he ran across like i just couldn't Mm -hmm. understand i guess why he was that close to where pressure would be so we talked it over a little bit and we're like okay we can pack back into this drainage we don't know what's back there anymore because I haven't got a chance to scout it since we left during uh, archery season. But we know where a buck is right here. And he looked pretty good. We should at least try to find him. So that was the day before the opener. Um, opening morning sets out. We get to a glassing knob that is on the same drainage. So we're looking at probably 600 yards and in about to where we had seen the... Well... At the upper end of where we'd seen the deer, I knew, I didn't think he'd be like right next to the road again. You know, I just figured that was kind of a fluke deal. So I started looking more up in the high country from there, higher country, you know, up towards the top of the drainage type of thing. And we glassed opening day. There was a lot of people around. So you're pretty much glassing like across the road that you, that you were driving on? We actually, we didn't know. We, we walked up the drainage quite a bit like more towards the top of just like looking on onyx where i thought a buck would want to be if Mm -hmm. you know if we see him in there where do i think he would go like i was thinking towards the top of that ridge and and there were some openings and things like that uh but still pretty timbered up so we were glassing probably 600 yards and in opening morning there were a lot of people around there were people like you could hear him down like driving the roads there were people walking down the ridges walking up the ridges there's a guy who actually walked right through the middle of where i really thought the deer would be and i'm kind of thinking gosh how long do we give this before we just go pack in and do our original plan Mm -hmm. well uh 
we decided to give it the full day and the next morning, and then we were going to pack in. So we, I decided that instead of getting so close, like 600 yards and in, like that's kind of close to a drainage if you can't see the whole thing. So mm-hmm. we decided uh, that evening we were just going to back it up. So we just ended up taking a little bit of the road system and then uh, walking out onto a big long ridge that kind of gave you like a big picture view of where we'd seen the deer. Like you could see a couple of drainages. You could see openings pretty good. Just kind of open things up a little more. And Mm -hmm. man, like six o'clock, six 30 in the afternoon, the only deer we'd seen was this buck in a little opening, actually right underneath of the glassing point that we had been on. And he's there feeding at six 30 in the afternoon, opening day of deer season. And you know, for where we were, he was pretty like wide out in the open. Everybody could see him, and I think we just happened to see him first. So we uh, kind of, I guess, drove back around the road system till we could hike, and we took off climbing and hiking and got up pretty close to where we thought he was. And it was one of those places where, like, you were going to shoot from 600 yards or you are going to shoot from, like, you know, less than 200 type of a deal. Mm-hmm. And we got, we got in pretty close to him. We were, I think my last range I got was like 186 and, uh, he was feeding on this open hillside and it was pretty, it was pretty, uh, pretty tight with trees. Like I really had to move around a bit and find just a little lane to shoot through. And, uh, man, that was pretty much it. Settled my crosshairs and, and shot him and he went 50 yards maybe into this little like a little cut, little drainage type, uh, not really a drainage, a little cut in the hill, and that's where we found him, and that kicked us off for deer season 2022. For the uh, the hunting moon, I, yeah. I love that. I love that term. Yeah. What was that approach like? Because to me, when if it's like a still evening, you're running out of time because you only found him at six six thirty. There can't be yeah. that much daylight left. No, and you're going to within two hundred yards of the, of you know nice mature buck. Like, was it a quiet approach? Like, when was it, when you were, after you left him and you couldn't see him anymore and you started the approach, how far was was he away when you re-found him? When we re-found him, he was at 200 yards. Eey. Yeah, like it was... That's nerve-wracking. Uh, yeah, I kind of had to make the... And it was really tight. Like, he easily could have been over a little fold or something and you weren't going to mm-hmm. see him until you were on top of him. And that was part of my worry and... We just hauled ass and tried to climb up there as fast as we could. And yeah, it was, it was just the only thing I can contribute to is a little bit like right place, right time, like things just stars aligned, you know? And uh, we could have, I, I thought about trying to go on the opposite side of the drainage as him and shoot across. But again, that was, I mean, it was probably going to be 600 yards. And I was like, man, I just really want to get, I wanted to get closer than that. And our only other option was to go straight, pretty much straight to him. And so I said, all right, we're just going to, he was on the shady side of the hill. So I knew the thermals were probably pushing down. So our wind would be okay. And I said, we just got to haul ass until we're close to where we think that little pocket is. And then we're just going to have to go slow and you know, yep. move a little bit in glass, move a little bit in glass. And I could pick him up through the trees and there was quite a bit of like brush in between us. So, um, 
I think he looked down our direction a couple of times and it got me a little worried because he could have just, you know, when been in the trees in four steps. Sure. But, um, yeah. I, well, I don't congrats. Know. Thank um, you. That's a, uh, that's a dream book. Did you put a tape on him? Yeah. So I wonder if our pictures weren't kind of the, the same thing as you were talking about on your elk. I mean, he was, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess, hold on. I'm going to, okay. I was going to already send you a number via text when you sent me the picture, but I'm going to guess that he's one seventy four. So we taped him at 168 yesterday. Oh, yeah. God, he looks like a, he looks like you could tell anybody that that's a 180 buck and they'd be like, okay. (laughs) Dude, I, I totally agreed. And when I, when I, his main beams are 20 and Mm -hmm. when I measured that, I was like, man, those are, I feel like that's a buck that would trick you a little on, on the, yeah, it's, well, it just goes to show you like that. 165 inch buck is a great buck. Yeah. And 180 inch bucks are like unicorns. They're just, you know, they're, they're hard to find and you got to hunt, you know, harder for them. But like, yeah, that's, it's a sweet, sweet buck, you know? Um, and, uh, you should be proud of it. Oh, Uh, I'm super proud of him, man. It was, it was awesome. We, we joked a little bit, uh, you know, we hunt together, my wife and I hunt together a lot and we do the shooter gets first shot deal. Or sp- gets, sorry, spotter, spotter, spotter uh-huh. gets first shot. Yeah, that's a good so, way to play it. Yeah, and uh, it was funny because when we just sat down, she was taking she was taking a picture of something that would look cool with like me and this what sunset or whatever. Uh huh. And, and I you found the buck while she was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. nice. So, All right, real quick, yeah. we're running out of time. But you, what, any real like uh, gear highlights that popped out for you on your uh, on that? Mule deer hunt? No, not nothing really big. I was using a new pair of boots from Crispy called the Altitudes, and uh, that's a you know really good light fast boot that I really liked a lot. People should look at, and man, that's pretty much it. There's nothing, nothing really big. Everything I was using was pretty tried and true. Nice. All right. Well, we're gonna be back uh, soon to tell you more about Jordans. Uh, hunting moon and uh, the the hunts that I've got for lined up for the rest of the fall. And remember, please comment uh, on our uh, the podcast webpage on the Meat Eater site. Uh, not only about those early season pants, but also just in general, what else you would like us to talk about here on Gear Talk. Um, if you even maybe personally know of a great gear expert that can speak to a certain piece of gear or gear technology, whatever it might be, uh, comment, let us know. Um, you can also send an email into geartalk at themeateater.com. Well, thanks again for listening. Jordan, it's good catching up. And uh, too, yeah, good luck on the rest of the hunting moon and we'll talk soon. Thanks, yeah. See ya. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.
Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.